Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Superconscious Success Podcast, where Jen and her Superconscious Success family co-hosts bring you valuable content each and every week on topics relating to manifestation, spirituality, and most of all, using your superconscious to manifest success in all areas of your life. Now on to today's episode. Hey there, Superconscious Success fam. Just before we get into the interview, this is just a brief message. Uh, this is actually a recording of the 2021 Superconscious Success Summit interviews. If you do want to check out the introductory for all of the guests, then you can go across to our Superconscious Success YouTube channel where you'll be able to find all the introductions. These particular podcast interviews will be the interview only. Okay, thank you. Now let's get on to the interview. Hey there, Superconscious Success fam. Welcome back to another episode of the Superconscious Success Super Summit. Today, we are back with an amazing guest called Clint Adams. He is all the way from Queensland, Australia, and my home country. And um, he is a former police officer who is now talking about resilience and overcoming adversity. And in this interview, we're gonna be talking about bullying. So um, if you have not yet seen Clint's introductory video, head across the Subconscious Success YouTube channel and check it out because he tells his story as to how he's come to be doing what he's doing right now. So we have got so much incredible information to share with you today about how the brain functions, about what resiliency is, how we can build that resiliency, especially in our teens, that are going through their own issues and, and their own um, adversities in their lives. Um, Clint is a, an ambassador for um, suicide prevention. And, um, and after, after seeing people that have, um, you know, been around people suiciding, he's a massive proponent for suicide prevention. So we're going to go a little bit into that. But um, let's start off, Clint. How are you today? I'm great, Jan. I get to talk to you. It's always a pleasure. Oh, yes. It, it's great to talk to you too. And it's great to talk to fellow Aussies that are out there making <laughs> a difference. So it's so funny because I speak to so many people from other countries around the world. And yeah. I don't notice the accents. But when I speak to my own fellow Aussies, I notice the accents. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know so what you strange. mean. It is so strange because... Yeah. Like to us, we don't seem like we've got an accent, but when we talk to other people, especially yeah. on platforms like, like this, um, you notice the difference. Absolutely. But I agree. But it was great to have you here. And we're Thank going you. to start off by understanding a bit about fear and anger. So can you explain the difference between the blue brain and the red brain and how both parts of the brain actually relate to fear and anger? Sure. Look, 
Red Brain, Blue Brain is a, is a bit of a, a, a project that I developed over the years. I used to be a counsellor for the people that haven't seen my bio thing. Um, I used to be a counsellor and, and, and over the years I kind of worked on trying to, I hate to say this, but dumb it down for the average person and not have to focus on talking about neuropeptides. And there's a lot going on in our brains. There's a lot of information out there, academic information that's, you know, maybe not what everyone needs to hear, but but effectively I try to make a lot of that information practical for the average person and, and really work on that. So when, when I developed what I call Red Brain, Blue Brain, which is a, a, a kind of session I run, which leads into a lot of other sessions, and I'll explain why that is, and this is where fear and anger comes into a major part of it. Um, so for me, I, I, I call Red Brain any kind of amygdala-driven thinking so for people that don't know what the amygdala is it's a very small part of the brain which is linked to our fight or flight kind of natural um instincts but also it's it's kind of the emotional center of our brain so when we when we experience highly emotional things events whatever it actually has an imprint in that part of the brain and that part of the brain gets activated there's lots of information that show that when you emig the more you use it, like any muscle in your body, the more you use it, that part of the brain will get bigger. And what they find, if, if your amygdala gets bigger, you'll actually are more likely to suffer stuff like depression, anxiety, and all this stuff. So there's, there's very strong information that show you don't want to have that growing and being a massive dominant part of your life and how you interact and that kind of stuff so in a nutshell it's saying you emotions aren't bad things they give you messages but you don't want to be stuck in in that space so if i use ptsd as an example someone's had a bad traumatic experience if they keep reliving that memory that causes them fear or anger or whatever those highly emotional things are um they get stuck in that pattern and the amygdala keeps growing and it experiences that as if it's another event again and again and again. And so when, when, when I fast forward to, so a lot of stuff like kids, kids who have trauma early on in their lives um, experience that and they develop an undercurrent of how they are. And if fear and anger is a dominant part of that and that normally people who experience trauma really, really young, it's massive risk factors that it's going to lead on to bigger issues in the future. When I deal with adults, fast forward now with adults, I'm dealing with people at the workplace. I find a lot of people, even in their 50s and that kind of stuff, when I run the red brain, blue brain and explain to them that, sorry, I didn't explain the blue brain part. The blue brain part is using what I call the frontal cortex or the, or the prefrontal cortex, which is us problem solving is where we do our imaginative thinking is where we assess and think back and reflect on what we could have done better what we can do better in the future and all that kind of stuff so it's kind of a solution based part of the brain so i don't go into the the nitty-gritty of you know the amygdala and neuropeptides i go red brain blue brain so it's kind of easy to understand and then you know there's, there's obviously a lot more info in there if people want to go and look at it but i don't do that when i'm running the session so when, I, when I'm talking to adults in a workplace around their mental health, their leadership, because one of the things is if, if I'm not comfortable mentally myself, I'm less likely to be an effective leader in a workplace and I'm less likely to understand other people's needs and, and be effective and think about problem solving and all that. So 
when, when I, I kind of designed this stuff originally it was for people in the workplace around how they can be better as managers, how they can be better as themselves, because, you know, you employ the whole person, as we said before. And, you know, if, if, if they're happy in their own lives and they can pass that on to their kids and they've got a happy family life, they're bringing that to work and vice versa. So it's about enhancing all of those, I guess, um, instead of risk factors, I focus on success factors and go, well, if, if they're not doing this, then it's an enhancement. If they are doing that, then it's an enhancement. So really focusing on those things. So to me, red, blue and fear and anger go hand in hand. For me, red, if we go back to red brain, fear and anger is definitely a red brain response. If I'm fearful and fight or flight kicks in, I'm either going to get ready to flee or I'm going to get ready to fight. And when that happens is, you know, the physiological stuff is blood's going out of my brain into my body, getting me ready for fight or flight. That's the first thing that happens. With blue brain, this is where we go, we want to reverse those gears a bit. If you're in red brain all the time, your interactions with people are angry or you're very timid and you're withdrawing. So it has an impact on how you are. So it's about understanding that when I want to get you back into blue brain and focus on things that's going to be problem solving, I actually want the blood to pump back up into your brain so it's not in fight or flight and reverse the gears. And this is where that bigger part of your brain, the, the amygdala is a small part, the whole frontal cortex is a bigger part of the brain, needs more oxygen. So understanding how some of those things work and some of the techniques that you need to do to help get those things reversed is a key part of understanding that. One of the other things I've used in the past is human synergistics tools. I don't know if you've ever heard of human synergistics. No, I haven't actually. No? Going to that. So human synergistics is a, a company that that run. Um, they're based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I won't get into too much detail, but what they do is they assess. It's it's a management tool, and they assess managers all around the world, and they have this massive norming group, 177,000 or whatever it is. Wow. And, and they compare every manager. It's a 360-degree tool. So this is what other people um, observe of your behaviour as a manager. So your, ma your own manager, your peers, and the people that report to you. But one of the key findings of, of all the statistics are they show you what's the most effective um, profile and what's the least effective profiles. And the common theme that comes through is that the least effective profiles are the ones that are steeped in fear and anger so the highly aggressive manager yep. one of the worst they're the natural yelling at everybody treating people like crap yes they get some results but they have lots of issues and then you have the other side which is your flight manager highly timid really wants to be a good people pleaser everyone likes them they think they're nice but they're not effective so yeah. you know the so most the first, one, the first one's based on intimidation and the second one's mm -hmm. based on passivity or just um just trying to avoid confrontation and neither exactly. of those strategies they may work for a very little bit but neither of those strategies work for a long period of time very true look certain roles can allow for a very aggressive manager like the army where you have to follow rules or, or people die and all that i get that but yes the overall process tells you that if i have an undercurrent that's either highly aggressive or highly timid I'm less effective and then it also affects it also affects my life outside of work I might be less effective as a manager but my life outside is you know I'm not as effective in my relationships because of the same things they're not wanting to 
necessarily deal with issues if you're too timid or they agree. They, they're so dominant and they want to dominate people at home. So the relationship's a power thing and there's yeah. issues associated with those things. Yeah. So, so if we find that somebody is sitting in the red brain, they're sitting in that fear and the anger, um, is the whole way to actually decrease the size of that red brain just to focus more on the blue brain and bring that to the forefront? Or is there a way that we can actually reduce that so that we don't have that fear and anger um, coming through? Yeah, there's definitely a few different... Um techniques you can use. One is, under, look, I, I get people to kind of assess their own behaviour. So the great thing about the 360 tool that I mentioned, which is the human synergistics one, is it actually puts a mirror up to you and goes, this is what people see. So there's the first part where we go, they're seeing this of you. The other side of the LSI, which is the tool, is they also do one for themselves. So I, I get a good impression of whether they understand themselves that well or whether they've been completely blindsided yeah. where they think they're a certain way and they're the total opposite. And I've had that in the past where people think they're very projecting positivity out in the world and all this stuff and they're coming across as just a very red, angry manager and they go, wow, I didn't expect that. So that, that's, a, that's the first part. But in terms of techniques, a big part of that is them understanding about how you can change those things. And I know there's some other questions that you're probably going to ask about those techniques, but essentially it's about understanding what your reactions like in, in um, interactions. I use something called the dialogue model. It's out of a book called crucial conversations where a big part of it is about when we're talking like we're doing now, it's dialogue, right? So, I don't feel too threatened by you and I'm hoping you don't feel very threatened by me and I probably can't grab you through the, through the screen anyway. But, you know, there's little threats. So we, 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 we're throwing information into a pool. When we speak, we're just throwing information to a pool that anybody can hear and all that kind of stuff. And it's about them understanding that being that way as a manager can have an effect on certain things because if I'm coming across as aggressive to you and you feel intimidated by that, it's going to mean our interactions aren't going to be the same way. So if I say to you, oh, am I a great manager, Jen? And you're really scared of me. Or you're not going to say much. Or you're not going to tell me the truth if I'm nasty. Yeah. So I don't get the truth. And, and many times people do the yes man thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I just agree with you. It's fear but on it's the not face. A, exactly, fear on the face. But it's not effective because people aren't telling you what you really need to hear to be yeah. effective. So you get that sugar-coated version of the conversation or the other side is they just don't tell you anything yeah. and they just withdraw and so th there's always a negative impact um, if, if you don't deal with those things well so there's a number of different things you can do to help them understand a understanding and them going okay oh wow I didn't know that and then yeah. you show them the statistics of what the human synergistics show and say you're actually in the bottom 10% of management is that what you want or you think you're effective but hey the stats tell me differently and you know do you have this is where you can also point out with management about you know some of the symptoms of being that kind of manager is people want to leave people don't turn up for work people would not do any more extra work for you all that kind of stuff and so you know um getting them to the point where they they realize they're not unconsciously incompetent but they now go holy crap i'm actually not as good as i think i am and hopefully they then you know, work with you and you can coach them through how to change those things. 
Yeah, it helps to wake them up to a, to where they actually are, as opposed to where they think they are. So um, yeah. now our thoughts our thoughts work very interestingly um, as to how it affects our body. So when we have a negative thought pattern, which happens in cases of fear and anger, what is it that happens to our body? So what people don't realise is when we're babies everything's new obviously and we're taking a lot of things unconsciously because we don't understand language people can be talking any language around a you know less than one year old and they don't understand what's going on so everything's coming in on the unconscious level the eyes the feeling the touch that's their world the actual language stuff doesn't really kick in until later but effectively when we have a thought it sends a message from our brain into the body the body then sends another message, and this is where neuropeptides and stuff come in. I won't go into the detail, but it sends another physical thing up to the brain to say, this is how I'm feeling about that. Yeah. The brain then computes that, and ultimately your brain and your body are calibrating whether I'm feeling happy, sad, whatever, over time. And obviously as we get older, this little interaction's happening thousands and thousands of times, and we build up an undercurrent of certain things um in our bodies and 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 what we think we we logically make decisions with our brains but we actually make decisions with how we feel which is in the body which is when you know when we talk about meeting people for the first time and you go oh i don't feel right about this person your unconscious has taken in info and it's telling you something creepy about this person something I don't like, whatever that is. And it might be right, it might be wrong, but they talk about the gut instinct. That's where the gut instinct comes from. We, you, Your unconscious sends you signals. It's not verbal. So it sends you feelings. And this is why if you get stuck in certain feelings, you can go down a really, really bad pathway um, and get stuck in that emotional side. And that's why it's important to understand that emotions are there to give you a signal, yeah. but you don't want to stay there. And so you know, understanding how we get into that mode in the first place can also help you understand how you get out of that mode. And then when I'm working with people with PTSD, for example, it's around saying, hey, my job here right now is to actually, when you're having those thoughts of that memory that caused you all this pain and anguish and whatever, your, your neurons in your brain are firing and wiring together. And every time you think about it, it's the same pattern. The more that pattern happens, the more they fire together, it means that you're creating a pattern of that thinking. What we're trying to do here to change that, because it's taking you to a bad place, is to slowly break those same wiring and firings together. So this is where understanding red brain and blue brain is so important. If, if it's taking you to red brain all the time, I need you to do certain things that can help you get into blue brain. One of those things is just to do a simple thing like a thoughts diary. When that thought pops in your head, write it down. All I'm doing here is what normally would wire and fire and make you go down red brain. Now you wire and fire, you've interrupted it, not all the way, but you're going, I'm using analysis work. Again, the blue brain, which is that prefrontal cortex, is where we do our analysis work, forces blood to pump back up into my brain because I'm doing analysis work. As simple as it is about writing down those thoughts things, it's breaking a pattern. And then the next step is, to break that pattern further, elaborate on those thoughts next week. Yeah. And then, you know, um, do something physical, like even something like centering or wiggling your toes, making you consciously think about doing something else makes those interruptions 
further and further apart. And so slowly you, you're changing your scope onto being uh, problem solving. And so that's kind of, you know, a really important factor in, in what we want to do to get there. Yeah, because it's really important that um, that we don't focus on on all these negative thoughts because um, what we focus on, we attract. We know that um, when, yeah. when you talk about law of attraction, when you talk about the, um, you know, when you talk about how the brain works. And yep. so I love the whole idea that when you're in that negative thought pattern, that we interrupt that and yep. we start to think about or start to do something that, that goes, oh, okay, I've got to take my attention from that. Because sometimes yep. we will sit there for ages just focusing on something which is of yep. absolutely no value to us. Yep. And, you know, and I know that teenagers do this and they will dwell on things and they, will, they might have a fight with their friend and then all of a sudden they sit on that for an hour um, focusing yep. on it and not understanding that something else could have happened to the friend before they spoke to them or anything could have, could have happened. Um, and that's an important point. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but that's an important point that your frontal cortex as a teenager is not fully formed until yeah. adulthood. So you're dealing with, they, they don't have, I wouldn't say they haven't got the capacity, but they don't have as high a capacity to do some of those things. So, Absolutely. you know, as a parent, you've got to be aware of those things too. Yeah, I often say that they don't actually have their brain fully developed until they're about 24. <laughs> and so, you know, this is when they make risk-taking behaviours. This is when yes. they, they start to, well, they start to try to foster independence, but don't realise that they're not actually, um, their brain is not actually at the capacity to be able yep. to make smart decisions. And yep. it's, um, so yes, it is an interesting time. But when we're talking about um, teenagers, and it's very important as a parent, that your teenager feels comfortable coming to you and talking to you, um, especially about things that are happening at school or happening with their friends. Um, you know, when my daughter was going through it, she would come home and she would tell me about it. Um, how important is it to create that safe space, um, whether you're talking about teenagers, whether you're talking about the workplace, that somebody can come to you and feel safe talking to you? Yeah, look, I think no matter which way you look at it, um, th there's been studies all around the world and, and people that feel safe are more likely to not only talk, but they'll interact at a better level. Psychological mm. safety, Google did a thing not long ago looking at um, what makes great teams and psychological safety was at the top of, of that pile. When you're dealing with kids, I often get asked the question, um, when I'm running stuff for like suicide prevention or, you know, how do I look at, you know, when, when my child's struggling or that kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, look, there's obviously the common stuff that people are aware of, you know, they've changed what they're doing or they're not looking after themselves and all that stuff. But the, the key piece I always go to, and, and, and this is about creating safety. What, one of the problems that we have, not only in Australia, but obviously a lot of Western uh, countries around the world is we do use fear as a way of, you know, not punishing, but wanting better behaviour from our children. Yeah. So, you know, some religions use it. They say, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to end up over there. Or if you don't do this, you're going to get in trouble or you're going to not get the internet or blah, blah, blah. blah. Yeah. So we do tend to use fear as a way of punishing. Um, 
our laws are based the same way. If I speed, I get a fine and I lose money and whatever, and I'll go to prison if I'm really bad. All these things. So, so a lot of it's fear-driven. And, and, and when you understand that as kids, when, when there's fear coming in, even, even little things like the words your parents use. So if you're a male and, and you're my age, you know, there was the classic, you know, big boys don't cry, suck it up, princess, you know, all that stuff. So if there's any fear factor in me having a conversation, you learn pretty quick, right? If, if dad's not happy that I'm crying and showing emotion, I'm less likely to do that in the future. And if I'm struggling with some kind of mental health issue and that's an emotional thing and, and, and I'm not going to just come out and talk to dad about it. So as a parent, you've got to understand that when you understand the dialogue model about you creating a safe space, as you put it, or creating safety for anyone to have a conversation is to actually have the conversation with your kids in a way that goes, there's no if, buts or maybes on this. I may have said some of that stuff to you when you were younger about sucking it up, princess, da, 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 da. but you know what? No matter what's happening in your life, I'm your dad. You can come and talk to me no matter what. I will yeah. make it work and I will be here for you. So I'm creating that safety in a very deliberate way and making sure that there's no way that you're going to, you know, do something that I'm going to find out later about and go, wow, they never came to me. It's yeah. about really having that conversation and being so clear um, in the deliberate way. Cause you know, you read about these parents who've kids have suicided and done things and they go, wow, I never knew. And if they had to come to me, um, you know, and so, they're not necessarily even the contributors, but for whatever reason, they didn't feel comfortable. They didn't have that conversation. So have the conversation, make it and a priority. I, and I think one of the things that's really important is that when you have this conversation, you make it very clear to them that you are not going to judge them in any way. Because the fact of the matter is, as teens, they make mistakes. As teens, yep. they're going to stuff up. That's just part of it. As we said, their brain is not fully developed until they're 24 years old. Um, yep. And so, we, so we've got to understand that and recognise that. And so the judgment as a parent must be dis discarded. And we must yep. go, look, you know, we support you. We love you. Um, you know, there are consequences for every action. That is just how life runs, whether you're in the home or whether you're outside of the home. Um, yeah. but we love you and we support you no matter what happens. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important. And the, the interesting thing is, I think it's something that pa parents especially are fearful of is discussing suicide with their kids. Yep. Um, because they feel like if they discuss it, it's putting it in their heads. Now, how yep. important do you think it is to discuss topics such as that um, with your children if you feel like they are actually dealing with anxiety or depression or something like that? Yeah, look, one of the issues um, when I run sessions with adults is they'll come to me after the sessions and they go, wow, you know, I've got a daughter at home who's struggling with blah, blah, blah. Can you talk to them? Because... I don't know this, not you know. I don't know the stuff to the level that you've just described and that kind of stuff. And for me, I wrote an article not that long ago called "The Unconsciously Incompetent Parent." I'm not trying to be totally nasty about the whole parenthood thing, but especially in mental health because we just don't know enough. I say we. I'm talking about the general population don't know enough about their own mental health. They don't know enough about how their brain works. If you think about physical health. 
we know a lot about nutrition, carbs, yeah. um, cardio, doing stretching, doing weight training. There's, you know, personal trainers out there. There's gyms out there. When we talk about mental health, what do we got? You got, oh, you go, go see a counsellor. We have Are You OK Day and all this stuff here in Australia, which is great about awareness, but the only outcome is to go and see a professional. Where's all the proactive piece? Where's the, you're a five-year-old, I should be able to help you, nurture you. And look, sometimes we get lucky and the kids are robust and they're fantastic and, you know, because you've got good role models and all that. But is there anything that actually gives you, not a script necessarily, but enough information that walks you through this and says, hey, here's things to try. You're a parent. If you're a physical parent, you do this. If you're not the most physical parent, what about this or books or da 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 And then there's no, not none of that. Sorry, there's good books out there that do it, but it's not part of our everyday, um, you should know a bit about this. So part of, you know, even this whole process for me is about me making what I call unconsciously incompetent parents consciously incompetent because if you know that you don't know stuff you go whoa yeah. I don't know about this now I want to learn or I want to find out more and I want to be more effective as a parent and so that's part of this whole process I'm not the only person that talks about this stuff. I'm not the expert on all psych there's way more psychiatrists who've done way more information but it's about making it practical for people and people going out and finding out a bit more mate yeah. my one thing about my book has got qr codes all through a book that's not linked to stuff i've written linked to professionals if you want to know more about you know neuroplasticity go read you know um you are the placebo by joe Dispenza, and there's brilliant books that i've read and i've read a lot of crap books too by the way that mm -hmm. haven't haven't made my cut in my book because I don't think it's effective enough, but you know, I've read a lot of stuff. So I'm trying to give people a bit of wisdom and go, Oh, okay, I can find out or I can learn or I can do. And so that, that, that's a key piece of um, any program we're going to run in this space. We're so far behind the physical side that we need to start pushing more into schools, you know, but also effectively understanding that not just, you know, Oh, let's, you know, we want to teach, um, people feeling comfortable. So let's do a karate class. So yeah, okay, they might yeah. get something out of that, but they're not, you know what I mean? Which is, which is once again, fear-based because we do a karate <laughs> class because we want to learn self-defense, which means that we're predicting that we're going to be attacked, which then comes back to fear again. Um, <laughs> I, I was almost a black belt in karate. Um, one thing I love about karate is it teaches great discipline. Sure. Um, and so there are so many benefits to it. But when you look at it, it's once again fear based. And so I think that um, that it's our, you know, that when we talk about um, when we talk about our kids and this is why as as the host of Superconscious Success and my brand, um, I'm bringing together six summits this year. Um, mm -hmm. All on different topics. This the March one is obviously the Super Summit. That's the seven day summit, um, which yeah. breaks down many different sections. But then in um, May, I'm actually doing a Conscious Parenting Summit, okay. which is which is what we're talking about. You're talking about the consciously incompetent parent. Um, yeah. But in the summit, we're going to be talking about how parents can consciously parent so that they can start to recognize their children as a learning uh, a learning because we're often taught that we're the parents so therefore we know best yeah. um, but i don't know about <laughs> you but i have learned so much from my kids it's not funny 
Yeah. Um, and so, so that's a summit I'm really, I'm really excited about as well because I think it's something that we need to, as parents, also learn how we can create that safe space through yep. the awareness. Absolutely. The awareness of, of maybe how they're feeling, the awareness of what they're going through, of the people that they're around. And um, so something that's really important too is the story that we tell ourselves. Absolutely. Um, so can you go a little bit into the story we keep telling ourselves, we keep reliving it, and some tips and tricks that we can use to change this story and start to become a director in our own lives? Yeah, look, um, often, and most people that go to a therapy or see a counsellor, they're, they're going there because they have a problem. Um, if, if you're feeling like life isn't a problem, you don't need to do any of these things. You don't have to change anything. One of the key things I've, I've learned is, you know, when we talk to people or, or read about people that have had trauma and they've got to a, a sticky point in their life where they just go, this is not good for me. And they come to that realization and then they make a decision and the decision is to do something else, yeah. whatever that is. I don't want to be in red because I'm only using red as an example, but 99% of trauma is stuck in red. And so when you're stuck in that red brain, it's about understanding that I am not happy in this place. And so when you kind of get to that point and, and you know, you, you make decisions on wanting to change things. Um, I, I do use the, you are the director thing a lot with people with PTSD where I go, let's relive the memory. So the memory that's drag, dragging you to red brain, let's, let's pretend it happened, right? There was one time in your brain that it actually happened and that was done and it's gone. Now your brain is bringing up the memory of that event really? and now it's a movie. It's a movie because it's not happening now. Your brain thinks it's happening because you're allowing it to happen. So what we're going to do is help you, not trick your brain, but explain to your brain that, hey, I have control. I'm going to change how this plays out. Last time it came across, this person pointed a gun at me and I didn't get killed, but it scared the crap out of me. Now this person's pointing a gun at me. My brain, I can tell you, put a red nose on this guy. Make the little bang sticker come out when he shoots at me. Make it funny. Make it whatever. And yeah. you can change that. And you, and you can do it deliberately straight away. And the more you play that out, the more you're interrupting the red brain response, but you're also putting something else in place. And then from there on, it's about understanding that when that pops in your head, you go into a mode where you replay it. So you kind of give yourself a routine. It's popping in my head, subconscious again, just sending info in there. It's giving me a message. I acknowledge it. I talk to it and I replay whatever I want to replay. So you, you're creating a, your own little movie and understanding how, again, I keep going back to wiring and firing. What was wiring and firing before I made that process is now a slightly different version of that. And I'm wiring and firing a different experience in my brain and I'm creating a new sub uh, pattern over here that's more beneficial for me. I can control that. I can make it change. It won't change overnight, obviously, but if you understand the wiring and firing, understand the methodology and you're doing those things deliberately, you make the changes. And then, and then every time that you start thinking of it, you've got this new story in your brain, so the reaction is going to be different to that story. Absolutely. 
So yeah, Absolutely. no, that's fantastic. And what about structural coupling? Can you go a little bit structural, into that? That's an interesting one. There's some people who come into a room um, and everyone cheer. Sorry, hang on. What's the, the, the story goes, you know, um, there's two kinds of people. People that um, when they leave the room, people cheer and people when they come into the room, people cheer. You don't want to be the ones that when they're leaving. So, you know, the energy that we project, the, the there's no doubt that there's, you know, energy that people ignite into other people. Some people you just want to be around. You want to hear them talk. You get the enthusiasm. You know, the Tony Robbins of the world, they're all high energy. You just be near them and you feel, wow, that's amazing. And then there's the opposite of that, which is the ones that you go, wow, that person just sucks the life out of you and drives you down and understanding that. So, look, we we, we control our energy a lot. when we're not feeling well, our energies are down. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just the way it is. So I'm not saying, you know, there's a big push for, you know, positive psychology and, and you know, Martin Seligman talks a bit about this, but he doesn't say you have to be up all the time. We yeah. never can be. Things are going to happen in our world. But, but understanding what you can have some kind of control over, what you can affect, how you, you know, focus on being positive, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's pessim, pessimistic people. They're all, everything's always a drag or the worst case scenario. Unfortunately, that show, if you're in the pessimistic group, you're less likely to live longer than the ones who are more positive because they don't see that everything's externally driven. They yeah. see that they have some control and they also see that, hey, sometimes I have no control. So, hey, I'm okay with that. I can't change it. Why am I going to worry about it? Worrying gets me back into that red brain space blue brain goes hey that shit happened i just got a deal i got to make some things i got to do things differently i got to pivot you know who thought covid was going to come how many people have gone done better out of covid because they've been able to go you know what opportunity knocks i can do this i can do that i'm one exactly. of those people right now i was expecting to be you know promoting my book all of last year going into schools doing all this stuff none of that happened zero and so you kind of go what else am I going to do? Now I'm doing stuff like this. I did not expect to be on, you know, doing podcasts and talking to people and, and getting involved in, in helping other people in their programs and the stuff. So, you know, uh, you know, being able to, and I, I understand that, you know, there's times where we're going to have tough things happen, but that ability to just go, I need to focus here. I know this isn't good. So why would I stay there? If it's not good for me, why would I want to stay there? And the social coupling stuff is the same. If, if my energy's the people that are feeling that and dragging everyone down they're not happy people their energy is low they're not feeling great about themselves they're the nitpickers and they want to pick holes in anyone else's good at ideas in work and so you know choose you can choose not to be that person and 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 when you make that choice it's amazing when you see people who just go you know what and they can see for it is And, and what happens is they actually lift those people up because part of them is going i understand that you're stuck I'm going to help you. If it kills me, I'm going to help you. I'm going to make make it contagious the other way. So you come into my room, you go, wow, this place is all right. There's a lot of energy, you know. And that's the thing. And and I think that as you you are naturally a high vibratory person, the people that come into your world are either ones that are going to lift their vibration to be where you are um, or else they won't actually come near you. And, yeah. and this is what I found as I've worked on myself spiritually and I've built my vibrations up to high levels yeah. is that those that previously 
would have would have gotten me down um yep. they're just not in my life anymore yep. because it's just um because we're at a different we're at a different vibration and i think that um it's really important that we do protect our energy yep. it's important we have a choice as to who yep. we hang around exactly um, and we have a choice as to whether we want to be in a group that's that's pretty much arguing over who's got the worst life yep. um, <laughs> or if we want to be in a group that's talking about how great everything is and how excited they are and, and all that, yep. we have a choice as to who we hang around. I totally agree. So, so now when it comes to teenagers and to adults, um, feelings like shame and guilt play a big part. Um, and what part do they play when it comes to resilience? Look, I think shame is the, the more sinister one of the two. Yeah. Um, shame is very much about I'm bad. Guilt is I did something bad. Now I'm feeling guilty about it. And and I'm not saying, I mean, people can still spiral if it's bad enough, guilty about whatever they've done. With shame, it's a tough one because it's usually um, things happen and then I look at it through the lens of what other people are thinking about me and I feel shamed. When I was dealing with police, for example, who had PTSD, you know, big, tough, burly coppers that you kind of expect have got the very masculine feel and, you know, I'm the rock of the family and, and I'm this tough guy and all this stuff. When when they've come across trauma or, or PTSD where something's happened that's put them in a way where they're crying, they're no longer that person, they really feel a lot of shame. And you've actually got to deal with the shame part more than you've got to deal with the actual issue that, that happened at the time and a big part of that is that um you know lots of things can happen when we go into a shame spiral what happens is i feel i have the thought i feel shame and then it, it creates anxiety and stress for me and then you know my cortisol levels go up my good hormones and all the good stuff goes down and so yeah. your body balance just completely thrown out of whack and when people get into what is a true shame spiral is the things that can actually help them like you know being out with people being physical doing what they don't want to do any of those things so it's it's everything works against you when you're in a really bad shame spiral and unfortunately um you know we talked about teenagers not having um you know the formed brain to think their way out of it and, and come up with solutions and then if you throw in that they can't talk to anyone about it because they feel scared. There's all these things that are massive risk factors. Like kids that get bullied, they, you know, someone shames them or they feel ashamed. They can't, they're usually the smaller kid. And so someone picks on them because they're physically bigger and all this stuff. So they feel an element of shame or, you know, they humiliate them because they're not wearing the right gear. Ha ha, you, you know, orphan Annie wearing hand-me-downs or all this kind of stuff. So the, we, we, that shame that we throw in as other teens towards other kids, you know, they have a massive effect and then they go and they think about it. And now with, you know, social media, it's even worse. In my day, you could go home and I have to see that kid all tomorrow. Yeah. Now everyone's, everyone's on social media, on Facebook, and they want to know because the dopamine in our brain says, I want to know what people are saying. How many likes did I get? And, you know, and so the, it, it it actually hurts us a little bit. So, you know, there, there's a lot of those elements of shame that we need to understand. One, one of the things in my book that I really focus on from a school level is saying we need to do more calibration with other kids at school 
in having conversations about what's acceptable behavior and what's not so we can avoid some of this stuff. If we do this early enough, when kids are brand new, we're five and six year old, we don't care what brand Clint's wearing, we don't know each other. It's like, hey, you're a new kid, I'm a new kid, and we all know each other. And if we were interacting at a level where you did something that was nasty to me, let's say, because I'm a dark person, you called me something that was derogatory and I didn't like it, normally I wouldn't say anything because, you know, we're kids and we don't tend to do it. But if it was structured in a way at a school level where the teachers are saying, all right, kids, it's the end of the day, it's the last 10 minutes, everyone get in a, in a, in a circle, let's talk about what happened today. Has there been anything that's happened that makes you feel sad, bad, and we're just going to talk about it and understanding that conversation. And if Clint goes, well, you know, little Johnny over there called me something that wasn't so nice and he called me this. And then if everyone in the group hears it, it does a couple of things. One, it calibrates to that kid. I don't like it. Yeah. Two, other other kids hear it. So when someone goes first, they feel more comfortable and more courageous to do it. So we see this all the time. Harvey Weinstein, right? One woman came out and suddenly hundreds came out. Why? Yep. Because mm -hmm. someone felt more psychologically safe to say it next and next and next and next. And so building that into just a day at school is such an important thing in my view. Creating that safety space. I see this. I see See with adults all the time, they won't even tell, I've got 50-year-old men, they won't talk to each other at work because they won't tell each other that, hey, mate, what you're saying to me has pissed me off or, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that um, creating that space is incredibly important. So, wow, we have certainly learned a lot today, Clint, and we have, um, we have hopefully helped some parents and also some, um, some kids and adults out there learn about the importance of resiliency and learn about how our brain works when it comes to when it comes to um, stopping the negative thought patterns that that are rising up so i yeah. really appreciate you being here with me today thank you and for having me thank you very much and keep up the great work that you're doing um, and i look forward to hearing what's what's going on in the schools once all that starts up again sure no problem. Um, but before we go, would you like to just, excuse me, explain to the people how they can get in touch with you and um, and that sort of thing? Yeah, so um, I've just created a new website. So if you do go on today, it's probably not at its best, but it'll do for now. So it's called, it's www.blueflameprojects.com.au and um, there's a number of things in there and, and obviously what I do as a business in terms of, the training and stuff that I run for organisations and schools if they're interested. There's a number of um, different kind of uh, resources there that people can look at. Um, there's stuff on my Twitter feed which has got a lot of uh, articles and things that I've written and blogs that I've written in the past that people can look at. It's all aimed at obviously helping with, um, you know, resilience and, and suicide prevention and that kind of stuff. And look, the other thing is hop on LinkedIn if you want to go down that path. But my website does have all my contact details. So if anyone's interested or otherwise, look up the book Lighting the Blue Flame by Clint Adams and yeah. that should pop up as well. And that's available on Amazon. So um, head across yes, there. In, and I think it's Kindle and, and print book. Yeah, because it's a British... Um, uh, publisher that I'm through, there's a bit of issues getting physical books out. So Kindle might be the quickest option if people, yeah. you know, aren't too fast. I, I personally like to have a book in my hand, but some like people are okay it. with with Kindle. But um, look, if you want to get it quicker, uh, that's probably the way to go, especially here in Australia. 
Uh, if you live in Britain, then it's probably you easier probably to get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Clint. Thank and, you. Um, and we'll keep in touch. Sounds great. Thank